LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Lombardo who joins us to discuss his book Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution. How do we create a good future? This deceptively simple question is the central challenge of human life. Indeed, the question highlights the most distinctive and empowering capacity of the human mind to consciously imagine and intentionally pursue preferable futures, a multifaceted psychological ability within us all that Lombardo refers to as future consciousness. We stand at what many consider to be a pivotal juncture in human history. Just as technological advancements race ahead with digitization and automation changing the face of society at breathtaking speed, so too we face unprecedented economic, political, social and environmental crises. In response, Many of us attempt to ignore these pressing problems by simply shutting down, lost in the past or the future, the good old days or daydreams of better times to come. Meanwhile, practitioners in the burgeoning field of pop psychology urge us to live in the present moment, the only thing that apparently exists. Both mindsets, however, may prove to be psychological dead ends. Change, in fact, is the only constant, and stability of the settled, sustainable kind we seem to crave is an illusion. Evolution, the meta-process of which humanity is an embedded part, is dynamic. It requires challenge and even crisis to move forward. Order does arise from chaos, but it is unpredictable. Evolution is the drive towards increasing complexity, and it is accelerating just as the universe itself is expanding. We are the universe becoming aware of itself and we have a tremendous responsibility to which current convulsions may ultimately serve to awaken us. Hello and welcome, Tom, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, hello, Greg. Uh, Thanks for having me on to do this interview. Okay, Tom, today we're going to be talking about your latest book. It's entitled Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution. Before we dive into that, just for listeners who don't know, if you could tell them a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yes, um, I have a PhD in psychology from the University of Minnesota. I worked both as a college professor and faculty chair in psychology and in philosophy, but I've also worked in mental health. Um, the last 20, 25 years, I have focused, though, on the future 
the psychology of the future and have written uh, articles in a number of books on the topic of the future, on future consciousness, on um, applying futurist thinking to um, one's personal and professional life, and to education. And I'm a member of a lot of different futurist organizations, and presently I am working on a uh, series of books on uh, science fiction as the mythology of the future, which is my next project that I've been on this last year, and in the next few years I'll be continuing on that. Okay, well, as I just mentioned, the title of the book is Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution. Perhaps we need to say a little bit about what you mean by future consciousness. You mentioned it there in your description of your, your own work. Not so much a nebulous term, but probably could mean a lot of different things to different people. So maybe you could just say a word about that. Uh, yes, uh, I use the expression future consciousness to mean all of the different normal psychological abilities that people possess, such as uh, thinking about the future, planning, goal setting, uh, having visions and images of the future, their thoughts and feelings about the future, uh, all of those different normal psychological processes are part of future consciousness, uh, which translated means our consciousness, our experiences, our actions that um, pertain to the future. And as I mentioned, it's a normal human capacity that everybody possesses, and it's a very distinctive ability that humans in particular possess, and it's something that we can enhance or develop within ourselves significantly and that developing it will have a big impact on the quality, the happiness, the level of flourishing in our lives. And in many cases, the problems that we face in life are due to deficiencies or weaknesses in our future consciousness. So my book is about that, among many other things. Okay, and there's many people who feel at this point in time where we find ourselves as a species, early part of the 21st century, that we're facing a lot of difficulties, existential crises through to very material problems on a number of fronts. Uh, there's a great deal of strife and conflict we have environmental problems, we have economic problems, we have ecological problems in terms of, you know, population and uh, resources. And it feels like sort of a never-ending cascade of bad news stories, really. And your book is ad addresses all of that, but it's actually quite a challenge to it, uh, to the sort of the mode of thinking that we find ourselves in at the minute. Uh, ultimately, it's very optimistic. It's sort of a a call to arms, I suppose, or um, I find it most inspiring, I have to say, in, in the face of all, all these problems that I've just mentioned. Yeah, so thank you. Um, my view with respect to our ongoing and diverse problems and challenges in the world is that fundamentally the problems that we face are due to a lack of development in our mental abilities 
and our associated ethical character, which is part of future consciousness, and that uh, we would make significant progress and headway on these diverse problems if we were to enhance and work upon the development of our own minds, our own mental abilities, our own future consciousness. So um, even though we may see problems out there in the world, these problems in the world are to a great degree of our own creation and that we can turn things around significantly by the development of our own minds. Um, it is a challenge in the face of adversity, in the face of problems, to be constructive and optimistic and to work on the development of one's own mind, one's own mental abilities. Uh, but indeed, that is the challenge that will turn out to be the more most realistic solution to the difficulties that we face. Uh, so yes, uh, the world around us, uh, as well as our own personal lives too, for that matter, can be very depressing and very disheartening. Uh, but the solution lies within ourselves, individually and collectively. Okay, so we have a number of issues that we just mentioned that seem to be getting worse rather than better. There are developments and improvements that are, give us cause for optimism and hope, but many others, certainly if you pay attention to the mainstream media, uh, that are doing the opposite. And there are certain problems that appear to be utterly intractable. Questioning what is it that turns something, some of these issues around, you know, issues that people cannot see a solution to. For example, in the news at the moment, we have President Trump deciding to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, so this reminds us again that we have an intractable problem, seemingly intractable problem, in the Middle East, that of Israel and its immediate neighbours. No one has, all of my life, I've been hearing about uh, potential solutions to that, and we seem further away than ever. On the other hand, I grew up amidst terrible violence in Ireland. That's pretty much gone away as a result of people finally talking to each other. In similar discussions I've had in the recent past, I've discussed the FARC rebels in Colombia, another seemingly attractable problem that seems to be well on its way to finding a resolution. So just using the Israeli-Palestinian crisis as an example, what is it that, in our minds, what is it that changes? How do, how do issues like that turn around? Uh, yes, good question. Um, there's a number of different things I could say about that particular problem. Uh, one thing that we've noticed in the news the last couple of days since President Trump uh, made that decision is that uh, various individuals have pointed out that in making that decision, he did not think through what the various consequences short-term and long-term would be of the decision he was making. And secondly, that he didn't consider an attempt to develop a collaborative future-forward way of thinking about the issues that arise when he made that decision. So, um, number one, 
it seems to indicate a deficiency or lack of future consciousness in the decision that he made, not considering the various consequences. And secondly, one of the key themes I bring up in my book is that um, a key character virtue of future consciousness has to do with understanding that our future is going to be a collaborative and interdependent reality as opposed to something that we can create just simply ourselves without considerations of other individuals or groups of individuals in the world. We live in an interdependent world. And so the um, minimal type of human consciousness or the bottom level of human consciousness is being too focused on the immediate here and now, being too focused on my particular needs and my particular goals and not having a broad perspective both on the world at large and the long-term effects of different decisions that I make. So the decision is really a reflection of rather limited consciousness, which is what I talk about as being the as being a significant deficiency or problem that a lot of humans um, exhibit. So uh, the reason why the problem occurs or this particular problem is occurring, is due to a lack of future consciousness or sufficiently well-developed future consciousness. Again, I want to re just reemphasize that everybody possesses future consciousness, but it comes in degrees. And some people show much more of it, some people show less of it. So I think to address these kinds of problems, such as the one you bring up, would involve putting more of an emphasis on the types of things I talk about in the book regarding the character versus the future consciousness and how we think problems through in our educational system of what we think is important. And so we put ourselves into this situation, or not all of us collectively, but at least this decision is a decision, in fact, that reflects a deficiency in thinking out the long-term and global uh, consequences of what I, you know, what I'm intending to do here. Um, and again, like I said, like five or ten minutes ago, um, I think that a lot of our problems that may look to be intractable or unsolvable uh, arise because we haven't sufficiently developed the capacities and ethical qualities collectively of our uh, future consciousness. Uh, so part of it is education, part of it is putting more of an emphasis on those qualities when we elect people and um, so we get ourselves into these messes because of those deficiencies and the ways out, the way out of these messes is going to be a concerted effort 
collectively at many different levels to make it more important to us to have enhanced these abilities in ourselves and to use these abilities in dealing with the challenges in the world. There's a strange dichotomy, I find, in a lot of our thinking, people's attitudes to life, in that in many ways, currently, we're encouraged to live in the present moment. Think of Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, for example. Yeah, yeah, there, right. There, there is no past, there is no future in that sense. There's just right where you are in this moment. That does have a positive dimension to it, because a lot of people find themselves lost in the past and the future. That is to say, the good old days and how things used to be and things were better back when, and also the future. That is to say, at some point, my problems will go away. At some point, I'll be rich. At some point, I'll be beautiful. At some point, I'll be married. At some point, I'll have children, if you see what I mean. So what's, what's your reflection on that? Because there's future thinking, which is just a way of uh, trying to cover up current problems, I suppose, and, and equally thinking about the past as a way of, of trying to just mask present difficulties. Yeah, it depends on how you think about the past and how you think about the future. Before I get into that point, though, I do want to highlight that focusing simply on the present is a low level of consciousness. What makes humans distinct and gives them power and ability is the capacity to remember and understand history and the capacity to think ahead. So if one simply focuses on the future, in one sense, that's the type of consciousness we see in animals and infants. The type of more evolved consciousness is to bring the past and the future into our understanding of our lives. Now, one can reminisce on the good old days in the past, and one can avoid um, present challenges by going off into wishes and fantasies of the future. But what I'm suggesting is that if one looks at the past as a repository of knowledge and lessons learned and patterns in history and it looks at the future from a constructive and a uh, thoughtful perspective, then that clearly is a more powerful and life-enhancing mode of consciousness than simply focusing on the present. I think focusing on the present, which is a cultural message, a very popular one, in fact, as you point out, um, I think that that's a philosophical blunder, and it's sort of a psychological impossibility anyway. Uh, so... Um, presentism is the wrong way to go. We shouldn't be thinking that the past it was better than today, or we shouldn't be trying to run away from the present into the future. Rather, we should be deriving knowledge and understanding from the past, using that knowledge and understanding to thoughtfully and constructively think about the future. That's the solution, not focusing on the present. One of the things that I found most 
interesting about your book, uh, your whole standpoint in general, was how direct a challenge it is to so many of the interviews I've actually conducted in the past. You go to the website, you may, you may find a hundred shows where I'm talking to people who are very concerned on multiple levels about multiple problems, be they, as I mentioned a while ago, economic, environmental, mm-hmm. uh, problems of uh, energy, where, where, we're, where we're headed, the direction we're headed, and they are not optimistic. They feel that enormous changes uh, are, are coming, not necessarily the sort you're talking about, far from it. The whole idea that stability, based, stability and sustainability being these things that we should strive towards, uh, but the change is the only constant. Actually, anybody who's lived for any amount of time will understand that. You know, people who have these ideas about planning their life, well, you know, good luck with that. That there is some relative stability, but human nature and evolution, as you point out, is dynamic. And yes. order does indeed arise from chaos, but it's unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. Um, attempting to strive for stability is unrealistic in the long run. We live in a dynamic evolutionary reality, and the way we will succeed is by developing thoughtful and ethical and informed approaches to uh, holistic growth and development. And I want to emphasize holistic, meaning developing ourselves as individuals, developing and evolving ourselves as a society. We can't keep things frozen or stable because every time we attempt to do that, reality creeps in and unsettles it. So um, I'm not uh, arguing for unending economic growth or an unending technological growth, but I am arguing that Unless we think of things in terms of evolution and flow and attempt to guide it thoughtfully and ethically, we are always going to run into this realistic problem, which is that reality will not stand still on us. So to attempt to freeze things, it's just, for example, as an individual, um, if you attempt to simply keep thinking and living the way you do today, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, little by little you're going to come into greater and greater conflict and dissonance with the world around you, which keeps changing. So we live in a dynamic reality, a dynamic environment, and uh, as a society, and if I try to make things stay still, it's never going to work. So we might as well be thoughtful and intelligent in the guidance of change. Um, so, uh, in fact, that's a big point that I make in the book, that the good life is going to be a life, or the good future is going to be a future that is evolving, not a future that is stable, because stability is not a realistic goal. Now, I don't mean to totally undermine the value of stability because you have to keep certain things stable in order to grow and to change uh, and to evolve. But you can't focus on stability and on sustaining things in a dynamic reality, 
where that reality is going to be changing. So you have to face reality here, basically, was what I'm saying, and you have to uh, do the best with the reality that we find ourselves within. Um, so, yes, I am challenging both the present the presentism philosophy, live in the present, and stability philosophy, try to get things stable or conserve things or sustain things. I'm challenging that too, but I think both things reflect unrealistic expectations and beliefs about the nature of human reality and the nature of the bigger reality that we're in. Uh, use our best powers and use them to do the best we can with the kind of reality that indeed we find ourselves in. 50 years from now, um, there's going to be other surprising new things. So like one of the key virtues I talk about in the book is um, uh, courage because there's going to be a certain amount of uncertainty uh, to life and, and a certain amount of uncertainty to the future. But you can't run away from it and hide in a corner and you can't try to stabilize things and protect yourself against the world that's fundamentally going to continue to be transformative. Now, you mentioned technology there in terms of like, you know, not advocating or envisioning unremitting technological progress per se, particularly not if it's, uh, if it has uh, an economic uh, or resource kind of dimension to it. You know, we can't have just everyone in the world is not going to be having two cars and, um, you know, air conditioning and a giant refrigerator that you can walk into, for example. Yeah. Or, or maybe they will, but that remains to be seen. But technology is, it's another area that I have done quite a lot of work on and many people feel that the utopian as they see it are slightly unrealistic visions that uh, the sort of the elon musks and the ray kurtzwells of this world have about the future is a way of distracting ourselves from current problems even though some of these technology gurus are saying no wait i have a vision here of how we can get past some of these problems and um again you're challenging the vision of people who think that going down the technological route is not a good one for us to do and that ideas of technological singularity and transhumanism um, are dangerous. And I'm not saying you're, again, you're not advocating any of that per se, but you, you're, you're challenging the idea by putting forward the notion that technology is in fact natural. And you're quite right. You know, that's what sets human beings apart from most other life forms on the planet is that we've used technology from the earliest days. You know, and we are in fact cyborgs. Yes, right. Yes, I bring that point up in the book that we are cyborgs, and we've been cyborgs for uh, millions of years since we began using tools, building artificial habitats, uh, creating utensils, all the different ways in which we use technology. Uh, <clears throat> what I would say on technology in the future is that. Technological development or evolution needs to be guided by um, wisdom, needs to be guided by ethical and thoughtful future consciousness so that as we develop technologies, we think about what the benefit is going to be to both humanity and to the environment. I do believe that at this point in time, the primary 
motive or purpose behind a lot of technological development is to make more money or to make money. That is, we sell products, we create products and we sell products as a way to make money. Or we develop products or we develop technologies as a way to increase our power. Um, our main motive, our main goal behind technological development must instead be based on fundamental ethical and human values and environmental values whether regarding whether or not this technology is going to benefit us in those respects and whether when we think out the consequences of it, and we can't always think out all the consequences of it, it's going to do us some good in terms of our mental, our ethical, our social, our ecological well-being. And I think that in, in that regard, we often do not proceed in that direction, but the answer is not to give up on technology because humans would not be humans without technology, but not to see technology per se as the solution, but to see human development and conscious human develop uh, the development of human consciousness and wisdom as the solution whereby we use those enhanced mental abilities and values to guide our technological development. So don't give technology up. Don't think, on the other hand, that it's the solution to things. Rather think that through uh, conscious human development and the development of wisdom, we can guide technology toward positive ends. Technology itself won't do it. It's the human mind and the human mind's evolution and how we use technology that's going to do it. Because obviously there's lots of technologies that we have developed for reasons, uh, various reasons that have not been of uh, benefit to humanity or to the environment. Uh, certainly are a lot of problems with, uh, as you say, technology created pretty much to um, not to fulfill needs, but to create needs and then to fulfill those with uh, for, for monetary gain. Uh, and technology, as you say, should be facilitating evolution of the mind, not degenerating it, which a lot of kind of popular technology does. So I mentioned earlier about technology as um, a way to kind of avoid current problems, you know, with the technological visions of the future. And in terms of uh, thinking of, say, for example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and where human, yes. hum, human beings are, are right across that spectrum, more or less, you know, some people can only focus on you know, what they're going to eat next and will they have shelter over their heads. Other people are at the self-actualizing stage. And some critics of technological development, where things are headed, uh, so they are critical of a lot of the, what, as I mentioned earlier, what they see as utopian visions of the future. They feel that some of this, some of these ideas would be more credible if humanity's basic needs were being met across the board. Now, that can all get a little bit circular because a lot of tech advocates are saying we can help with environmental concerns, you know, with resource problems. We can raise all of humanity up if we develop in this direction. Other people are saying, well, perhaps we should forget about Mars One and, you know, day trips to uh, to the moon until we basically feed everyone. Yeah, um... I'm definitely uh, of the view that, for example, the uh, exploration of outer space um, is of benefit not 
uh, simply uh, to um, uh, let's see um, uh, pie in the sky idealists who uh, uh, want to create settlements on on the moon and on Mars. I think we learn a lot by uh, the uh, uh, the space initiative. We learn a lot. We learned a lot about the Earth and the Earth's ecology by putting satellites up. Um, and it gives us a better perspective on the reality that we're in, that we're around the Earth, and that we're in a solar system, and that we're part of a uh, big grand scheme of things. By going out into space, we understand and appreciate that more. And we often find solutions to problems on the Earth by expanding our vistas outward. Um now, people who are concerned about <clears throat> taking care of the fundamental human needs, Maslow's hierarchy is a little misleading because people, even if they're concerned about <clears throat> where they're going to get food and wa water and shelter, they have other fundamental needs that would help them immensely in their own psychological well-being that Maslow puts higher up on the scale on his pyramid that would increase human happiness significantly if we also thought about those two. We can't just simply think that we're going to make people content and happy just by giving them food and water and shelter. We have to think that people will only feel really fulfilled in life when they have their higher needs addressed as what Maslow calls their higher needs addressed as well. So um, all people, well, I won't say all people, but a great bulk of people need some overall sense of purpose and meaning in life. They need, they have, they need some sense of uh, how they fit into the big scheme of things and so you can't just keep you can't just focus on trying to address the lower needs Maslow called the lower needs. You have to think about how to address those higher human um, aspirations and goals too. And again, I will go back to what I say in my book is that if one develops one's mental capacities, one's one's consciousness, one's ethical character one's ability to find purpose and meaning in one's life, that that will immensely benefit the overall level of human happiness and fulfillment in people. And by doing those things, we will become better problem solvers for what we what might be considered the more mundane aspects of human life, too. So... Um, I, I'm looking, I, I guess in this sense, I sort of resonate with Maslow and people of that kind who believe that uh, it's important to look at the higher reaches of human nature when you think about what will make for the good life and what we should be addressing because those dimensions of human existence are critically important to everybody, even people who maybe are having trouble and struggling with dealing with their primary, what Maslow called the primary biological needs. Uh, so I don't poo-poo space exploration because it's 
sort of gives us uh, a sense of uh, the big picture of things and uh, it gives us a sense of our place in the cosmos. Um, and I've, I guess I've always felt that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, the thought that occurred to me then is that, you know, there is a great sort of postmodern denial of meaning and purpose in life, you know, in, in the world or even in the, the larger universe, which is kind of leaves us, uh, certainly in modern Western industrial society anyway, that no matter how our material needs are being met, no matter how wealthy we are for some people, there's never enough because the whole thing's pointless anyway. And this, of course, ties in with the idea of living in the present, you know, especially if it's a sort of hedonistic living in the present, you've got to get what you can get now because, yeah, you know, yeah. you're, going, yeah. you're going to die yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a terrible attitude. That's a terrible attitude. Um, part of the meaning and purpose we find in life we create ourselves. Part of the meaning and purpose we find in life has to do with the world that we live in and the people and nature and the universe as a whole. I think the postmodernists um, or whoever <clears throat> would be saying this, that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Uh, life has no meaning, life has no purpose. I think that that's just entirely misleading and just plain wrong. Um, that um, meaning and purpose in part does get created by us, but so what? That's good. Meaning and purpose to some degree is found in the world at large, and that's good too. It's both factors. Um, and to throw your hands up in the air and say there is no meaning and purpose in life is uh, philosophically and psychologically uh, nihilistic, fatalistic, ridiculous, and uh, what are going to be the consequences of it? Um, uh, one thing that you brought up earlier, which I'll just toss in right now, is that optimism and pessimism are uh, have self-fulfilling prophecy effects. That is... Um, if you think pessimistically and out of that you also end up thinking nihilistically and you end up feeling like there's no point to anything, then that's exactly, not exactly, but that to some degree is going to be what you end up living and creating. If on the other hand you uh, have a, a realistic and constructive optimism and look at things and see and think that there's there's going to be ways we could try to figure out or make things better here, that that has a, uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy effect too. So the postmodernists may say life has no meaning, and in effect that's the kind of life that they end up leading is a life with no meaning. But people find having a life with no meaning depressing. Uh, and so they end up being depressive critics of the world that they're in. And they feel that way themselves. And so um, it depends on which approach you pursue, but I think realistically, meaning and purpose and um, looking for solutions does lead to a more fulfilling and happier and flourishing and better kind of life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that very much if we look at, uh, turn on the television news 
in the evening and find that depressing. If we look out the window and at the world and think it's looking bleak, the outer world is a, basically a manifestation of our of our inner world. I think and yes, um, to, to some degree it is, and that's a, a very important point, Greg. To some degree it is, yes. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I constantly have to field objections from people who talk about humanity as a cancer on the face of the earth and they're misanthropists and nihilists and the sooner that we're all exterminated the better i hear this a lot yes in fact i just read this extensive article on that very theme yes go on i'm sorry for interrupting you yes no not at all i was simply saying that if there's one thing that i do find of value in that I mentioned earlier the current fad for living in the present. If you go to the mind, body and spirit section of your local bookshop, not only will you find lots of living in the present books, you'll find lots of manifesting books about you create your own life. And although many of those are very superficial and misleading, uh, there is a degree to which if you decide that you're going to be happy that you can be, for example, if you decide that you're going to be well, that you can be, simply that our minds do actually have an effect on our bodies. The placebo effect demonstrates this. So, Oh, yes, in fact, yes. Um, almost, I think almost every physical disorder has a psychosomatic component to it. Um, so one's, one's attitude, one's beliefs, one's ways of thinking are clearly going to affect one, uh, one's physical health, for sure. Um, there was something else you just said in there that I wanted to comment on, too. If you turn on the news, you'll note that news stations generally focus on what's going wrong, what are the problems occurring in the world, or what are the problems occurring in politics or in economics, etc. There are many other sources of information or sources uh, that one can turn to that would feed one's mind with a lot of other information and ideas that are both uplifting and positive. As it turns out, on most of the main parameters that we use to measure quality of life in the world, most of them were seeing improvement on. Some of them were not, but most of them we are. We get a particular skewed version of reality when we look at certain sources and we get a a different view of reality when we start to bring in other sources too. And so I'm not arguing simply that be optimistic even if the world is falling apart, but rather part of the reason why we end up being pessimistic is that we only look at certain sources and we don't look at other ones. You are what you eat. Your mind feeds on what it gets. And there's a lot of information, a lot of ideas, and a lot of things going on that are actually uplifting to the human spirit and uplifting to the mind and are based on, uh, and are realistic and based on aspects of, of reality. So we have these selective sources of input. We have these selective perceptions, we have these selective interpretations, and all of that feeds into creating a very dismal and depressing and frustrating vision of reality. And as it turns out, when you're in that mental state, you're not as intelligent, as creative, as um, imaginative as you would be if you were in a more positive and constructive mental state. 
So that's part of the reason why this becomes a self, it has a self-fulfilling prophecy effect. If I get depressed all the time over what's going on, my capacity to try to address or fix those problems is actually diminished. So if you, if, if you want the problems to stay the way they are, then focusing on those problems, obsessing on them and looking at the world entirely in terms of what's wrong with it as opposed to the various things that are right with it or could be right with it, that's a guaranteed way to make things not improve or to make things even get worse. I remember having a conversation with someone a couple of years ago and uh, along these lines, and I mentioned a news magazine periodical that we have here in the UK called Positive News. And this guy came, yes. this guy came back at me saying, yeah, but nobody buys it. And it does seem like we have, we seem to like collectively, we seem to like the bad news stories. You know, I, <laughs> I, I fire up my computer in the morning and I get a, the first thing I see on the internet is a news feed. Now I've, I've chosen to have that because I'm interested in current affairs. I want to know yeah. what, well, I want to know what we as a species are seeing. And I look at the balance of those stories and generally speaking, they're all negative if there are any positive yeah, yeah. If, if there are any positive ones they tend to be very superficial you know they're not positive at a uh, some kind of species or existential level they're just there's there's stories that are just designed to distract ironically enough from the negative ones mm-hmm. so i'm wondering do we gravitate towards bad news stories because they sort of confirm a view of the world that's sort of already there is it kind of like a that self-fulfilling prophecy is it a vicious circle along the lines that you suggested yeah yeah in fact this is a very good question, and I, and I think that there's lots of different answers people have given to this kind of question as to why is it that we attend to and put our conscious, uh, put our conscious uh, focus on things that are going wrong or things that are negative. Um, uh, people in uh, the media will say that bad news sells, good news doesn't, or draws your attention. An interesting historical phenomena, if people paid attention to history, which they say, so the presentists say you shouldn't, is that people have been forecasting <clears throat> the end of the world since the beginning of recorded history. And people have been seeing intractable problems with the world since the beginning of recorded history. That is, this is nothing new that in fact we tend to focus on disaster and the negative and think that we only have another week or two to go before everything falls apart. This is something that has drawn the human mind uh, to it <clears throat> for um, uh, millennia. Uh, so what is it that attracts us? Now, one possible answer that pops into my mind right now, and I've thought about a lot of different answers to this, is that being constructive and trying to create something better both within yourself and in the world around you is hard work. Being negative and uh, just throwing up your hands and saying that it all sucks is, uh, is easier. And also, by seeing all of the problems out there, it distracts my attention from seeing what can I do, what can I do in my own particular life and myself to improve my situation. So 
uh, it's almost like a way of avoiding responsibility for making things better. If I look around me and I see everything that's going wrong, as opposed to think, what is there in my own individual life that I can do to try to make things better? Uh, but I also, uh, I also clearly acknowledge and people have discussed this, why are we so attracted to chaos, disaster, mayhem? Uh, why are we attracted to the dark side, so to speak? Um, what is it psychologically that makes it easier for us to go look at what's wrong and then start blaming and just bemoaning than uh, instead think of the good things in my life the things in my life that I can improve and make better. And perhaps, you know, the answer I gave, that it's harder work to evolve than to devolve uh, is part of the answer right there. But we've been doing this since the beginning of recorded history, this kind of thing. Yes, exactly. There was lots of people, um, you know, the year 1000 was going to be the end of everything and, you know, on and on back in time, in fact. And we, we all remember 2012 um, as, a, you know, a, an enormous non-event in many yes, ways. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, I agree. Yes. Um, I mean, every year or two, not every year or two, probably every year, there's some impending disaster that somebody is foretelling and... Um, um, you know, actually, uh, although I feel a little, uh, I have mixed feelings on this, um, I tend to avoid watching the network news. And I do that because they keep rehashing the same problems over and over again. They keep moaning and groaning about the same, bla about one damn thing after another. And I will often turn on other channels which um, have more interesting and psychologically uplifting things to watch. There's various, you know, science history channels, which are very informative. And I like science fiction, which isn't all nihilistic uh, or pessimistic. And it, it, it stimulates my imagination. And it gets me thinking about other possibilities besides what people focus on when uh, I turn on the news. And um, uh, uh, there is one person in particular who I find it very psychologically aversive even, almost nauseating, to even listen to or watch on TV, uh, although he is given more attention than anybody else. And that, in fact, is a fascinating topic in itself because if we were to pick out an extreme case of something which unsettles and upsets people more so than anybody else does and seems to embody and represent more negative qualities with respect to humans and the reality we're in, that person gets more attention on the news than anybody else does and anything else does. So there's a beautiful example of the dark side or what people see as the dark side, their attention getting drawn to it and it getting reinforced over and over and over again. You mentioned science fiction there, and uh, I must say I'm very much looking forward to this series of books that you mentioned at the top of the hour. But a lot of science fiction um, tends to be dystopian or post-apocalyptic, you know, thinking of like... Uh, 
whether it's Mad Max or Blade Runner, whatever it happens to be. But equally, um, a lot of science fiction has turned into science fact. And it's a popular meme, isn't it, about how many of the technological things in our modern everyday life would once have been thought of as just magic or just an impossible. Even electricity itself, you know, would have been some kind of voodoo <laughs> to past societies. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. the, and talking about technology in another in a collective sense, the internet is an interesting example because that's something that was foreseen before it was really conceived as possible. And that's kind of the best and the worst, really, of our species, I think, in many ways. You know, the internet is full of crap. It really is. But yeah. it's it's taken us forward in so many ways. I interviewed the philosopher Peter, Peter Russell um, a few years ago, and I remember his book, The Global Brain, which came out in 1982. 19- yes, I read that. Yes. Yeah, yes. 1982, and he made a little film about it in 1983. It also reminds me of a point you made earlier that he pointed out in that that when we saw the first picture from space well, of the Earth itself, that that did something to our consciousness. And I suppose mm-hmm. where, where I'm going with this is, despite all the negativity and all the talk about doom and gloom, that there appear evolution does appear to be accelerating, whether it's f- not so much on the physical level at the moment, but technologically. But it's like we're evolving through this this forward thrust. Evolution itself is evolving just as the universe is expanding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you said a number of different things there. Um, item number one about science fiction. Um, science fiction not only anticipates the future, it frequently helps to create the future. So many people who have read science fiction and have been inspired by it and actually their actions in life as technological or scientific uh, explorers have uh, realized uh, visions or ideas that they read about within science fiction to begin with. Um, uh, Science fiction is the literature of the transcendent, of the fantastic, of the imaginative. It stimulates the human mind. And so it stimulates those people who read it and they, in fact, often take what they read and it has an impact upon them in their own lives and what they create. Uh, second thing I should say about science, it uh, expands human consciousness. And so it's not just simply about technological development. It often is about social and psychological development, too. So a big part of it is um, utopian, dystopian thinking or about the future evolution of humans. And all of that can not just simply be frightening or depressive, but it could also be inspiring too. And there's very, and there are a whole host of positive and inspiring images about social, ethical, psychological evolution, not just simply technological, but social, psychological, and ethical evolution too. And, that, and people need to be inspired. They need to be able to see what are the positive possibilities and for them to be motivated by such positive possibilities. So science fiction enriches human imagination across the board, not just simply technological. Um, people have criticized science fiction, at least contemporary science fiction, as being rather dystopian or rather bleak. And if you use things like Blade Runner uh, or Mad Max, those, of course, are rather bleak images of the future. But again, that's what you see in science fiction that comes out in the movies. That isn't the total vast array of science fiction that you find in science fiction literature. 
and in in uh, science fiction cinema, uh, having big battles, lots of mayhem, disaster, awful situations, uh, 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 lends itself to creating uh, a very uh, impactful and sensory stimulating special effects. Um, and uh, so. Uh, it's not like you can't have uplifting uh, science fiction cinema, say, for example, Close Encounters of 30 years ago, uh, but uh, a lot of contemporary science fiction cinema is negative. And when it is a negative where the good guys win in the end, it's simplistic. So we have the whole Avengers series, and it's one damn thing after another, one damn villain after another, one real big problem after another, but in the end, the good guys end up winning, and things are, uh, of course, um, uh, brought back to uh, something better or something normal again. Uh, but even then, the the positive images in those cases are simplistic. Uh, so um, I definitely think that uh, 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 science fiction provides a lot of stimulation, both positive and negative for the human mind in considering uh, the possibilities and inspiring possibilities and frightening possibilities of tomorrow. Um, it expands one's consciousness in both directions. But it's not just simply about technology. Science fiction has a definite humanistic side to it as well, too. Um, so uh, that was an awful lot about what you just, just your comments, but there was a whole set of thoughts I had as you were talking about, you introduced the topic of science fiction. Talking about science fiction, I was actually, when I was t uh, talking about the internet earlier, I was reminded that I think it was called The Fountains of Paradise by Arthur C. Clarke. I can't remember when it came out, probably the 50s I'd imagine, but um, uh, he describes what's basically the internet in that book. And I remember reading that back in the 80s and thinking, oh, wow, that'd be cool. You know, wouldn't it be great if you had a screen in your room and you could, like, have a selection of things that you're interested in filtered for you each day and it would just pop yeah, up? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so that does, mm -hmm. it does happen. And, of course, popular – we're talking about the news cycle and the, the media in general, but popular culture, of course, is saturated in a lot of the negativity we're talking about. And using that, uh, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy idea again – you know, we need to be careful about that because it it is a vicious circle. We do feed this. Yeah, we these, do. These yeah, ideas. we do. And um, yeah, the founds of the founds of paradise, by the way, uh, was uh, written in the nineteen seventies, oh, but okay. it wasn't the yeah, it wasn't the first anticipation of the internet. You could go back at least to nineteen oh six with the, the machine. Yes, the, the machine, machine stops. stops. Yeah. Yes, at least that far back, if not further, probably. I should have thought of the machine stops <laughs> because I went to a theatrical production of it recently, and um, oh yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, uh, that's because um, you know I have a lot of science fiction circulating around on the perimeter of my consciousness, and I'm an historian of science fiction, and so uh, I will often. Uh, bring up, uh, when was the first this imagined, and when was the first that particular idea imagined? And having looked at the history of science fiction, I have it sort of readily there in my head as to when things first were envisioned. Um, uh, it, it, I, I'm sure there's earlier anticipations of the Internet, too, which both has negative and positive consequences. But when I look at the Internet, 
Um, I see. Uh, I, I use it. Uh, I, I don't mean to sound uh, like I'm bragging or something. I try to use it for its constructive, positive um, affordances as opposed to the things it does, which are uh, uh, destructive or distracting or negative. And uh, uh, as Neil Postman once said, anytime you have a new technology, you gain something, and then you also have a cost incurred with it as well, too. So that's why I said before about technologies and anticipating them or developing them that you got to think about what the benefits, what the pros and cons are going to be on them too. Um, you know, um, I know what the other thing you were you were talking about there was that um, uh, technology can, uh, aside from those people like Ray Kurzweil who see it as something that's positive and it's going to benefit us. Lots of people have been very fearful with technology, too, and have been fearful about its development. Say, for example, the Terminator Matrix scenario where we develop a computer that's so smart it destroys us in the end, um, or almost destroys us in the end. Um, uh, but that's our... Uh, that's a fear we have of machines. We have that fear of uh, machines. We have this fear of technological or scientific creations. But, you know, going all the way back to Frankenstein, it wasn't the creature itself that was bad. It was Frankenstein who was um, a, a vain and self-centered and neurotic and obsessive and terrible creator that was the problem. It was the human in the in the scenario that was the problem. So if we're going to evolve technologies and technologies that are going to be very powerful, uh, we have to guide them using the best human qualities as opposed to this image we have of, in popular science fiction of the mad, crazy, stupid, um, power-hungry scientist who develops them instead, and then they backfire, of course. I think that some people who view technological, utopian-type future as a desirable thing um, find critics in those who imagine that, say, for example, like the, the vision put forward by the, the zeitgeist movies, the, the people behind that, they see that sort of future as bland and boring because ultimately it is one of stasis. Yeah, st st it is. In fact, that's what makes for or utopias. Uh, uh, that, that's what creates the problem in utopias mm -hmm. is that you env envision an ideal static state and, of course, it becomes boring. And you envision a totally controlled state and then it becomes oppressive. And so when we think about an ideal human society, a utopia in, in the broad sense, we have to think of something which is creative, diversified, evolving, interesting, more fascinating uh, than some kind of uh, a static and controlled reality, because that, again, is unrealistic and it's repressive of the human spirit, too. Well, I think if there's one thing that a Blade Runner kind of, I think, probably accurately predicts is that however technology develops in the future, there's, there's still going to be dirt. There's still going to be grime. It's yeah, there is. Of course. Yes, in fact, um, uh, that's one of the, um, uh, that's one of the realistic insights one has to face up to in life. Uh, now, I could be wrong on this, but I would suggest that no matter what era we live in, now, in the past, 
or into the into the future, there are always going to be problems and challenges and difficulties of one kind or another. That's why people will say a utopia is unrealistic because you'll never have a perfect reality. And if by that they mean you'll never have a reality that there are challenges and problems in, then they're quite right. I think there will always be challenges or problems. But that's the point. The point is, in a world where there's always challenges and problems and risks and threats and uncertainty, one can throw his hands up in the air and say, the hell with it all, and it's just not going to work, and we're all going to fall apart and kill ourselves, or one can constructively work toward making the world better realizing that you're always going to be in a reality that's going to have problems in it. And that's what the test is. The test is, can you be future-oriented and constructive and wise and optimistic and courageous and self-responsible and imaginative even when you're out on the battlefield of life? Uh, to think that, you know, these problems are going to overpower us or that somehow we can get rid of them all. Uh, one view is fatalistic and the other view is unrealistic. Well, just a closing thought from me, Tom. Um, mm -hmm. Just to wheel out an old cliche, uh, you know, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. Uh, I do feel yes. that in many ways. <laughs> and I think that the advancement of, well, life on Earth in general, but certainly humanity, does seem to be a step process, as in two steps forward, sometimes one step back. And that just seems to be the nature of it. And we, we find that in our personal lives as well. Sometimes as we, as we move towards specific goals, you know, maybe we have a setback, we get up again and we move forward. And I think that, um, a lot of people will try to, whether it's in their personal lives or collectively, you know, on a global level, they all kind of deny that we have any of this agency or seek to deny it because with that comes then the responsibility for shaping reality. Yeah, and um, that's my number one character virtue of future consciousness, heightened future consciousness, which is that one must accept and embrace and pursue self-responsibility for one's own future because that's empowering. That puts... By putting the responsibility on you, then you can do something, and you could always do something. There's always some actions you could take, some thoughts you can create that could make things a bit better for yourself and a better for the world around you, the immediate world around you, or the global reality around you. Uh, but that means that the solution lies within yourself as opposed to blaming the external reality. But if you blame the external reality, you put yourself in a powerless situation. What could I do about so-and-so? He's a jerk. He's a moron. He's an idiot. Okay, what could I do about those people? You know, what could I do about that reality out there that's making things difficult? But if I look at myself and what could I do to improve myself, I mean, I'm not saying anything that other people haven't said before. If everybody decided that in their own individual lives they could do they could do various things to improve their own local reality their own personal consciousness their own immediate surround and maybe also have some impact on the outside world which is positive as opposed to being depressed fatalistic antagonistic uh aggressive 
uh, and whatever other terms you want to throw in there, <clears throat> that that would have a mass and huge collective effect upon the future of humanity, just through all the individuals doing it as opposed to blaming everybody else and everything else. Okay, Tom. Well, today we've, we've been talking about your uh, new book entitled Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution. That's available everywhere. Uh, perhaps you'd like to share details of a website or just anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, well, I have a website, which is the Center for Future Consciousness. And I also have a journal, which you can subscribe to a newsletter that's online that you can uh, subscribe to on the Center for Future Consciousness. Um, and the website is simply titled that. Um, <clears throat> and um, I also um, I have a separate website called the Wisdom Page, which is uh, the, the URL is the Wisdom Page. Um, and um, uh, aside from the Future Consciousness uh, book that just came out, I have a number of books that I have written over the last 10, 15 years that you could purchase on Amazon, all of which are up on the website. And uh, uh, I'm very much looking forward to um, uh, publishing and um, uh, after I've written all four volumes, the upcoming science fiction uh, uh, book series. Uh, the first uh, volume will be out next year. And uh, what else can I say? Um, I'm uh, and I'm available for you know giving talks uh, on either future consciousness or science fiction. Um, anybody can contact me through the website. Uh, oh, and I also have uh, Center for Future Consciousness has a Facebook page as well too. Splendid. Well, Tom, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, thank you, Greg.